Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Thursday, May the 4th. I'm Nyla Boot. Today, which American downtowns are thriving and which are struggling? And fentanyl overdose deaths in the U.S. nearly quadruple over five years. But first, an attack on the Kremlin and what comes next in the Russia-Ukraine war. That's today's One Big Thing. The Russian government says two drones attacked the Kremlin early Wednesday local time in what it claims was an assassination attempt on President Vladimir Putin, who was not in the building during the incident. Ukraine has denied responsibility and claimed the accusation was a Russian false flag. But the incident could be a pretext for Russia to ramp up the fighting in the year-long war. Here to help us dive deep on what this all means is Axios Senior World Editor Dave Lawler. Hi, Dave. Hi, Nyla. Let's start with this drone attack on the Kremlin. I don't know if it's fair to equate this with, like, a drone attack on the Pentagon, but isn't this a pretty highly secured space in the middle of Moscow? Yeah, so this is a very strange incident, in part because the Russian allegation would suggest these drones were sent from Ukraine, which is, you know, Moscow is hundreds of miles from the border. These drones would have gotten into central Moscow. And these videos that came out online appeared to show at least one of the drones just above the roof of the Kremlin at the time that it was disabled. So there was a small explosion just above the roof. There was actually a fire that appeared to be on the roof of the Kremlin in this video. And so that was one of my first thoughts too, Nyla, that how did these things get to the heart of Moscow and the most secure building, presumably in the city? So that has still not been adequately explained by the Russian side. Of course, they say that this was a Ukrainian operation. The Ukrainians say they had nothing to do with it. You know, from sitting here in Washington, it's hard for us to make sense of of what exactly took place. Regardless, where are we at right now with Russia and what they're expected to do next? Yeah, so we've seen explosions on both sides of the border just in the last few days. And a lot of these have been at arms depots or there was an oil depot that went up in Crimea. There have been attacks on rail infrastructure on both sides of the border. So what this suggests to me is that both sides are making attacks ahead of this expected spring counteroffensive from the Ukrainians, trying to take out supply lines, things like that, and prepare the ground for what we expect to be a heavier phase of fighting. I've actually, and I think I've come on this podcast before and talked about this looming counteroffensive. And I I feel a bit like the boy who cried wolf because it's been coming, you know, it's been pushed back and back. We're now into May and we haven't seen this counteroffensive start yet. But it really does look like these signals mean that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if kind of any day, any week now we see much more heavy fighting across a broader slice of Ukraine than what we've seen over the winter, which was a very concentrated battle for one city in the southeast of the country. We're expecting something quite a bit bigger in the spring into the summer. But again, it hasn't kicked off yet. So, Dave, can you catch us up? Is it basically still a stalemate in terms of not much territory being ceded by either side at this point? Yeah, so since last fall, which you'll remember there were a couple different phases of a Ukrainian counterattack last fall. A couple cities fell to the Ukrainians. 
Then over the winter, as you mentioned, the battle lines have basically been frozen except around this one small city called Bakhmut in the southeast of the country that the Russians have come close to taking, but it hasn't entirely fallen to Russia yet. But, you know, more broadly, we, we do this map at Axios every once in a while where we show control of the country based on what Russia has, what Ukraine has. That map would look pretty much the same today as it did toward the end of last year. And so the big question now is, can the Ukrainians, with all of this new Western, you know, capabilities that they've taken on tanks, new missile systems. Uh, they've trained up a bunch of their units to use this, you know, more sophisticated weaponry, and they've brought a lot of new troops into the fight. And so the question is, can they now change that map that we've all been looking at for months and hasn't changed very much. And on the Russian side, they've really been digging in their defensive positions to prevent the sort of sweeping counterattacks that we saw last year with Ukraine taking back a lot of territory. And they've also brought a lot of conscripts into the fight as well. So really, you're going to see two very different armies going at it in this spring and summer phase of the war. It's not even the same soldiers necessarily as we're fighting each other last year because they both brought in new recruits. Actually, this is Dave Lawler. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Nyla. Coming up, why some city downtowns are faring much better than others. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boodoo. During the height of the COVID pandemic, city downtowns became almost ghost towns. Now, a number of cities are rebounding while some are still struggling. A new study from the University of Toronto delves in and Axios's Alex Fitzpatrick has been covering it. Hey, Alex. Hey, how are you? So, Alex, the conventional wisdom is that COVID killed a lot of downtowns. What are we seeing now? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it certainly did. Now we're seeing a bit of a rebound in some cities, Salt Lake City in particular. More people are hanging out in Salt Lake's downtown now than they were pre-pandemic, which is a pretty staggering result considering what's happening in a lot of other places. So how did this study measure success when it comes to downtown activity? Is it the amount of people there? It is, but in a very creative way. The researchers involved used uh, cell phone location data as sort of a proxy for the cell phone's owners. So, for instance, you know, as you walk around downtown or anywhere else, your cell phone sort of hops from cell tower to cell tower. And that's a way of showing, hey, there's, there's a person here. And so you mentioned Salt Lake City as a bright spot. Who fared the worst? San Francisco is still just at a fraction of its pre-pandemic downtown activity. And a lot of that is happening because it's such a tech-heavy city. And a lot of those tech workers during the pandemic, you know, had the opportunity to go remote and they just simply haven't returned. Or if they have returned to the immediate San Francisco area, they're just not going into the office and going into the city every day. And is that what accounts for the difference between cities, cities that have more remote workers versus not? That's definitely part of it. It's remote work. It's people who just left entirely and now maybe aren't working remotely, but are working in person somewhere else. The pandemic was a great reset in so many ways and, and that are still playing out in cities nationwide. Is downtown activity the ultimate indicator of a city's economic health? It's not necessarily. There are cities that are, you know, not at the tippy top of the economic ladder in the U.S., but have vibrant downtowns right now. Baltimore, for instance, is, is pretty high on top of this list. And it's doing fine. It's doing better. But, uh, you know, obviously it's a city with, you know, more growth ahead of it. It's, it's one indicator in a mix of other economic indicators for sure. So how are cities bringing people back downtown then? Well, one idea that's getting a lot of traction, a lot of interest, and a lot of money behind it is this idea of converting office space to residential housing. 
So basically, you take a building that was built and intended for office space that's not being used for that anymore and turn it into apartments. Uh, a lot of cities are doing this. But so, you know, some of them are finding that it's more difficult than it sounds. One challenge is that offices really aren't built to be residential housing. And so you've got to do a lot more modifications than it might seem in order to make those spaces livable for people on a day-to-day basis. That's Axios' What's Next editor, Alex Fitzpatrick. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. And one more update on this. Nordstrom says it's leaving downtown San Francisco with the closure of two stores there. This follows similar closures by other major chains. So that trend of downtown decline in San Francisco is for now continuing. Here are some other headlines we've been following. Fentanyl overdose deaths nearly quadrupled between 2016 and 2021 in the U.S. That's according to a new CDC report. Nearly 70,000 people died from overdoses involving fentanyl in 2021, and the fentanyl death rate for men was 2.6 times the rate for women. The FDA and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration are holding a two-day public meeting next week to tackle the crisis. Speaking of the FDA, it just approved the first RSV vaccine after six decades in the making. The single-dose shot made by GSK will be given to people 60 and up who are especially vulnerable to the respiratory virus, and it may be available as early as this fall. The CDC needs to recommend the vaccine before it's publicly available. It's meeting in June. Pfizer has also developed an RSV shot for the same age group. The FDA is expected to make a decision on that vaccine by the end of May. And finally, an update from the Federal Reserve. The Fed raised interest rates by a quarter point yesterday, marking their 10th consecutive move to fight inflation. The central bank did also hint that it could soon pause its series of hikes. That's it for us today. You can always reach our team by emailing podcasts at axios.com, or you can text me at 202-918-4893. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Five years ago, when Tasha Adams was leaving her husband, the founder of Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, she kept it a secret. The one person she told outside her family, the ex-wife of firebrand Alex Jones. This week on the Death, Sex, and Money podcast, hear these two women in conversation for the first time and Tasha's plans for watching Stuart Rhodes' sentencing this month for his role in January 6th. That's on Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.